Hello, and welcome to 90.5 WESA's Good Question podcast. I'm series producer Katie Blackley. We've reported on everything from which dinosaurs lived in Pittsburgh to why there are colorful seals on the 40th Street Bridge. It's great to have you with us. For today's episode, grab an oar. We're taking a trip on our rivers to explore how the waterways shaped our region and continues to define us. And he was the owner of it in 1803 when Captain Meriwether Lewis was launching his um, boat from Fort Fayette, which is the present site of Pittsburgh's downtown David Lord's Convention Center. After the break, let's hop in a canoe to Bruno Island. Support for the Good Question podcast is made possible by the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra, bringing great music to Pittsburgh for 126 years. Calendar of performances and ticket information is available at pittsburghsymphony.org. And by Castus, a Pittsburgh-based consulting firm specializing in business development, e-commerce, and international expansion. No obligation consultations available at castusglobal.com WESA. C-A-S-T-U-S global dot com slash W-E-S-A. About two miles down the Ohio River from where the Monongahela and Allegheny Rivers meet, there's an unassuming island with a storied past. Pittsburgh resident Scott Cooper often passes the island on nearby roads. I always see it kind of in the middle of the Ohio River near the city of Pittsburgh. I've always wondered, like, what's the significance of it? Has anything significant happened there? This is Bruno Island. Unlike many of its Pittsburgh Island cousins, no one lives here and it's not accessible by car. So WESA editor Chris Potter and I hopped in a canoe and launched into the water from the north side. We are about halfway across the main channel on the mighty Ohio River. We can see it, but we're not too close to it. Overgrown grass carpets the banks of Bruno Island and driftwood thuds against remnants of old steel slabs and no trespassing signs. In the distance, electrical towers loom over the tallest trees, connected by dozens of wires. Just to our right is the West End Bridge, and uh, slightly behind us is the Alcasan plant and the former SCI Pittsburgh. The 129-acre island lies between West End communities like Esplin and McKees Rocks and the North Side's Marshall Shadeland neighborhood. It's about the same elevation as the banks of the Ohio surrounding it. It can be seen from highways 65 and 51. French doctor Felix Bruno built a home on this kidney-bean-shaped island in the 1790s. Bruno was the foster brother of Revolutionary War General Lafayette and accompanied him to Pittsburgh. On the island, Bruno and his family entertained some notable guests, according to John McNulty with the Lewis and Clark Heritage Trail Foundation. And he was the owner of it in 1803 when Captain Meriwether Lewis was launching his um, boat from Fort Fayette, which is the present site of Pittsburgh's downtown David Lord's Convention Center. The Lewis and Clark Heritage Trail begins downtown and passes by Bruno Island. Lewis was invited by Bruno to stop by his residence when he first embarked on his famous journey to explore the West. The Bruno family maintained a residence there until about 1819 when they left and the land was used for farming. Around the turn of the 20th century, George Westinghouse's Pittsburgh Railways Company bought the island and built an electric generating station. This is just when electricity, when a light bulb was getting invented. Pat Conti is with the Duquesne Light Company, which took over the generating station a few years later. Its operations occupied one side of the island, and on the other, a recreational facility was established. Ah, uh, there's a group of Pittsburgh businessmen. They call themselves the Pittsburgh and Allegheny Driving Club. And I guess they needed a place to have fun on the weekend, so they built the one-mile oval dirt track on the island. 
The Bruno Island racetrack featured horses and automobiles transported to the island by barge or ferry. Its first races were held there in 1904, when 55 miles per hour was considered speedy. Still, the experience brought a lot of fans and well-known drivers to the island. There was a, an AAA championship car race, and it was won by Lewis Chevrolet. Lack of interest and an increased need for electricity caused the racetrack to close in 1914. By that time, Duquesne Light had expanded operations with the construction of a second power plant. The coal-fired facility supplied hundreds of thousands of kilowatts of electricity to the city. Over the years, as technology has advanced, the generating station has changed, too. And on Bruno Island today, it's not owned by Duquesne Light, the generating station. It's run by natural gas. Conte says a visit to Bruno Island is like entering a different world. Sure, there are roads and old loading docks for barges. But then in between all of it is all wildlife. Trees, flowers, bushes, um, lots and lots of birds. The Audubon Society identified dozens of species of birds when it recently surveyed the island. When we paddled by, deer watched from the shore. The island has seen centuries of Pittsburgh history, and now most of it is quietly returning to nature. Just ahead. So they had put the canal boats on those rails and pulled them up the mountain where there'd be a steam engine, and they used a, a counterweight system that the canal boat going down the other side is helping to pull that canal boat. Innovation on the Pennsylvania Canal, right after the break. Get Pittsburgh news and Pittsburgh stories delivered right to your inbox every weekday morning at 7 with Inbox Edition, a newsletter from WESA. It's a quick read that brings you up to speed on the most important topics of the day. It's easy to subscribe at wesa.fm slash inbox. Before highways and railroads crisscrossed the Commonwealth, a series of linked waterways and inclines brought people and goods across Pennsylvania. This was the Pennsylvania Canal System, and it was key to creating communities and economic growth. But what did it look like? Good question asker Michael Gregan says he took a Pittsburgh history class and remembers seeing an aqueduct spanning the Allegheny River in an old photograph. Apparently it was part of the canal system that bore waterborne commerce above the river. And I remember thinking that's kind of fascinating that it wouldn't be on the river. It actually went above the river. Listener Rob Hallett tried to picture the system coming down the river before railroads existed here. To think that there was also a canal at one time is pretty amazing. The Pennsylvania Canal was a significant architectural achievement when it was constructed in 1826. Dave Wright with the historical group the Pennsylvania Canal Society says state lawmakers wanted the system to stretch from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh after the commercial success of the recently opened Erie Canal. The Pennsylvania Canal came into Pittsburgh from the Johnstown area, known as the Western Division. It ran alongside the Allegheny River, from where it met the Kiskamenides near Freeport, about 30 miles north of Pittsburgh. And then uh, ended up uh, coming into the river about where PNC Park is now. Pittsburghers at the time wanted access to some of the commercial boat traffic that would be using the canal and lobbied the Pennsylvania legislature to allot money to build a branch into downtown. Workers constructed a navigable aqueduct, which is like a bridge with water in the middle so boats can float along. And came in down the middle of 11th Street and then through a tunnel where the U.S. Steel building is now. And then the tunnel continued out underneath Forbes Avenue and then underneath the Manor Building. The Manor Building is the office building next to the Allegheny County Courthouse and the Liberty Bridge ramps. There were four canal locks here that helped boats reach the Monongahela River and the boatyard near 2nd Avenue and Ross Street. Once the system was complete, travel across the state was much faster. So the time travel between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia was reduced from several weeks to several days. 
Yeah, before we started to build the trail, this old railroad was had been abandoned for many years. Jack McGuire walks down Salzburg's Canal Park, about 35 miles east of Pittsburgh. I was born and raised in Salzburg. I'm an uh, active member of our local Salzburg Area Historical Society. The path he's on is where the Pennsylvania Canal once passed through this community. So with the beginning of the canal, the population in Salzburg just blossomed. They built canal boats here, and from what I've read, some of the best quality canal boats on Western Division from Johnstown to Pittsburgh. A lot of Pennsylvania towns developed because of their proximity to the canals. McGuire says the path was determined based on what made sense geographically, which was typically following the course of the rivers. But sometimes they ran into obstacles, like the Allegheny Mountains. So they built a combination of traditional canals, railroads, and inclined plains, similar to the two that still climb Pittsburgh's Mount Washington today. So they had put the canal boats on those rails and pulled them up the mountain where there'd be a steam engine, and they used a, a counterweight system that the canal boat going down the other side is helping to pull that canal boat. But these were heavy cargo boats, and it wasn't always possible to pull them up when they were full. Picture taking a canal boat uh, 80 foot long and cutting it in thirds, making each third watertight, and taking them up one third of the time. Salzburg hosts a Canal Day celebration each year, and there are still remnants of the system throughout the state. Part of the light rail T station uses canal tunnels underneath downtown Pittsburgh. The Pennsylvania Canal wasn't used much after railroad lines were built in the mid-1800s, but it was the catalyst for a number of engineering innovations at the time, and some that still shape our region today. If you kayak up the Allegheny River, you'll encounter locks and dams. If you're looking at a map or know the names of all the different locks, you might notice something. Lock number one is missing. Listener Keith Klaus wondered about this. And when you look at Google Maps or a map that lists the locks, they start with lock and dam number two at Sharpsburg Aspenwall, then number three at Harmerville, four at Natrona, and so on. It stands to reason there'd be a lock and dam number one, but I've never been able to find it. Keith is right. From downtown at the point where the Allegheny feeds into the Ohio, there isn't a lock or a dam system for nearly 10 miles. But it wasn't always this way. When you come down into the area, the landing area, um, you can see the from the water, you can see the old wall, the original wall. That's Terry Grant, the manager of Lockwall One Marina. We're in the strip district below the cork factory lofts. He's standing on a swaying dock pointing to a massive off-white concrete block. Part of the block is submerged in the river and there are weeds peeking out from beneath it. It looks old, but solid. And I believe that's the, the inside of the original lock where the, the barge is what it went through. Lockwall One Marina is a private facility that houses the Pittsburgh Luxury Cruise Line, a handful of personal boats, and some nosy geese. But back in the early 20th century, it was the location of Hare's Island Lock and Dam, which is lock number one. Grant says the rivers have changed over time. Most people don't know that the rivers were not what they are today. They were just shallow creeks almost. The only kind were passable by boats is when, you know, flooding and spring seasons. In the Pittsburgh region, with its hills and valleys and varying elevations, locks and dams were constructed to make the water levels more navigable. Boats trying to pass through the locks go into a closed-off pool, where they sit while gates shut to stop water from flowing in. Then, depending on if they're traveling upstream or down, the water level rises or falls to make it easier for the boat to continue on its route. Steve Stoltz is an engineering manager with the Pittsburgh District Army Corps of Engineers. 
It oversees the region's locks and dams. They all have unique features, you know, from over a hundred and some years. Um, there's a lot of different engineering, a lot of different materials, and a lot of the older ones are the ones that we have the most challenges. He says a lot of the locks and dams are built differently because back then they were constantly experimenting with the mechanics. What material worked best? How wide should the lock be? Builders used timber, brick, steel, and concrete. In the early 1900s, operating a lock required a lot of labor. So it was very uh, dangerous and very uh, unsafe, you know, even during constructions and no real hard hats back then, life vests. For Allegheny River Lock and Dam 1 and most of the early systems, men had to stand on steamboats and manually open and close the gates. It was hard work. These days, one engineer can push a button and open a gate. Stoltz says they're even working to make it so that locks can be operated remotely. It took a while for Lock and Dam 1 to be built. Grant says aside from funding, the workers kept running into problems. Floods and, and other, I guess a tornado came through. While there, yeah, of all things in Pittsburgh, a tornado uh, came through and destroyed a lot of, uh, you know, what they were working on. When it finally opened in 1903, it was the second concrete lock and dam the Army Corps had built. It was in operation for a few decades, serving as the first step for boaters traveling up the Allegheny. Then, in 1919, construction began on the Emsworth Lock and Dam System on the Ohio River. It was built with the latest and, at the time, most effective technology, like easily movable gates, more sturdy chains to control water level, and a larger pool for water traffic. It would replace Allegheny Lock and Dam Number 1, along with two others. With the dams that they then built further upriver and also further downriver, I think with Emsworth Dam being built, that kept the, the water levels in the Pittsburgh area up. And, uh, and all the other dam systems that they built at that time. During the 1940s and 50s, Allegheny River Lock 1 was slowly dismantled and the land was bought by private investors. But you can still walk from 23rd Street toward the river and see the former site. Grant says a lot of it remains. You can see where the old dam was because the water then flows over and bubbles back. Uh, if you get a lot of current, uh, you can see where it kind of bubbles back, where it you know, rolls over the dam underneath the water. It's, it's definitely a piece of history. So that's the story of the first lock and dam system on the Allegheny River. It's survived by more than 20 on the region's three rivers. There's been a lot of talk about infrastructure recently. In a few years, eight locks and dams on our rivers are expected to be retrofitted to generate hydropower. A Boston company will construct turbines and create electricity for about 75,000 homes and says it'll be done so the water quality and fish life won't be harmed. It's another evolution for the historic lock and dam systems. Have you ever kayaked or canoed through the locks? The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has a number of safety courses and trainings for how to safely ride through them. It's another fun way to experience Pittsburgh. Let us know on social media at 905-WESA. Thanks for listening to our Good Question podcast. Join us for another episode next week where we meet at the intersection of art and industry. All around Century 3 Mall are, are these uh, sculptural pieces um, that have been there for most people's whole lives. But really, they've been there since the mid-70s. Special thanks to Patrick Doyle and everyone at Pittsburgh Community Broadcasting. I'm Katie Blackley. Have a great day. And as always, stay curious.